morning is from Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciousness are divided, defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Father, I pray you would use these words, Father, to strengthen us as your people. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us through them, that, Father, we would find goodness and glory in you as we strive, Father, to live as your faithful children here on this place, in this place and on this earth, Father, for your glory and for your goodness. In your name, amen. Well, good morning again. We are continuing through Titus. This will be the third week of six that we um, will be be here um, uh, in two weeks from now. I believe it's in two Sundays from now. I am out of town. We're going on vacation to the Black Hills to see family. So pray for safe travels. That's in two weeks from now. Um, and we've got uh, a special uh, guy, Richard. He's been here before. He's going to come and he's going to preach um, so pray for him as he's preparing. Uh, but so we've got about another, including this week, another four weeks in, in Titus. Um, to kind of give a little bit of a recap, a couple weeks ago, starting a couple weeks ago, good preaching and good theology. In other words, theology is the understanding of God, the study of God. So how we, how we study the Lord and who he is and what his commands are. And then the preaching, which is what I'm doing right now, which is different from teaching. Uh, preaching, there is not um, any communication. Teaching, there's, there should be, in good teaching, some sort of communication um, between those who are speaking and those who are hearing. But good preaching and good theology are defined as good because they are God-centered, not me-centered. And so naturally... Good theology and good preaching, as defined that way, naturally point to the goodness of God, not to the goodness of me or the goodness of you or the goodness of us as a church. And it's through the preaching of God's word, through the communication of the truths of God as given to us by God in his word, in this book, the Bible, that eternal life is actually revealed to us. And so God appoints godly men as elders to be stewards over his people and over the preaching of his word. Because the preaching of the, the truth of the word of God then leads to eternal life. And preaching falsely leads to eternal death. And so eternal souls are at stake. Which means it's great to want to be an elder but know what you're getting into because the stakes are high 
And the task of an elder is vital to the spiritual health of any body of Christ, any local church. And the church then is tasked with appointing these godly elders to hold firm to and to teach the sound and trustworthy word of God. And as we will see in more detail today, to actually rebuke those who contradict the word of God. So when I initially began to study these verses for today, verses 10 through 16, I made the assumption that this was actually about any false teacher. And as my kids know, assumptions are dangerous things. And so you have to let go of that assumption. I had to let go of that assumption as I began to study it more, um, that even though it is, uh, this is true in a way that you can recognize false teachers, um, no matter where you're at, as I read more carefully, I began to see that these false teachers were, they're actually in the church, the local congregation. Now, with the internet today, it's kind of opened up a Pandora's box as it pertains to having access to a lot of different preachers and teachers. And some are solid in the faith, and some others aren't even close to being on wobbly ground, let alone solid ground. And I was tempted to start lifting off, uh, listing off names of well-known people who I hold to be false teachers. And again, that might be helpful in some cases, but I think it would get us off the path as to what Paul is actually trying to teach Titus and in turn teach us through these words. And then it just becomes about the names and not about what makes them false teachers. So the elders of Elm Creek are to ask hard questions because that's the context of this passage. Here's what elders are, and they're to contradict false teachers. Oh, elders, this is what a false teacher looks like. And so the elders of Elm Creek are tasked to ask hard questions of our own church body. Are there false teachers in our midst? How do we know that they're false teachers? How should I respond to those false teachers? What is the hopeful result in responding to those false teachers that are in our midst? And so this is, this is different than, hey, okay, we're hearing you say something that you know, we're concerned about. This is, no, you're a false teacher. Those are two very different things, and we're going to get into that a little bit. But just as there's qualifications for godly elders, so there are qualifications for false teachers. And I use that word qualifications loosely. Uh, well, not loosely. I put that in quotes because they're not really qualifications as in like, this is what you need to do, but no, this is who you are if you are a false teacher. Paul calls them insubordinate. That means they're rebellious against and see themselves as independents of the spiritual leaders of the church, of the elders specifically. They're empty talkers. In other words, they say a lot of words that mean very little and they produce very little fruit, if any fruit, in those who are listening. They are deceivers, which means they mislead others away from the truth of God's word to something completely different. They are detestable. They're despicable and vile. They're disobedient to the elders and to the word of God. And then finally, they are unfit for any good work. That is, they're unfit for the work of God. And in the middle of this passage is a strange section which insults every Cretan ever born. Like, isn't this hard? Like, we think, but I hear people say, like, the, the New Testament's all about love. And I'm like, have you read Paul? Like, this 
This would be something that any pastor said, well, you know those Maple Groveans or those Minneapolis people, Minneapolis people, I don't know what are Minneapolisans? I don't know. You name a city, and somebody calls them out and says, you know, every single person ever born in that city, this is how they are. This is what Paul is saying. Why in the world is he saying these things? He says, they are always liars, they are evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now, that's not Paul's words. He's actually quoting a famous Cretan prophet. He's not putting them on the same level as Old Testament prophets. He's just saying, here's, here's a well-known guy of the Cretans who's describing himself, which is funny because he calls himself a liar, and then can you trust him then? See how that works? It's meant to, to be that way. His purpose, Paul's purpose in, in this, though, is not to just offend every single Cretan, is to remind Titus of the reputation of Cretans. The reputation that they hold in the world and that Titus's task of what Paul is calling him to do and ultimately what God is calling him to do is going to be an uphill battle. These people are not teaching sound doctrine, but they're turning people away from the truth, meaning that they are turning people to unsound and false doctrines that will actually lead to eternal death. And all of this to say, elders, and you could say that for us today in the church, elders, you've got your hands full because false teachers and those who follow them, they're not just simply godly people who were mistaken on a few things. They are unbelievers. They are unbelievers who reject the truth of God and who themselves are walking into the fiery pits of hell, leading others to do the same. And so make sure, as elders, that you deal with them quickly and you deal with them rightly because their soul, eternal souls are at stake. So how does Paul say that he should deal that Titus and these elders should deal with false teachers. Well, first, the elders are to silence them. He says that in verse 11. Literally, that means stop their mouths from speaking. Remove them from any position of teaching within the church and diminish their ability to speak any falsehood. Second, he says rebuke them sharply. That's in verse 12. Expose their false teachings to them. Convict them with the truth of God's word and scold them for teaching falsehoods. Now, if this seems too strong, Paul adds that this rebuking should be done sharply or severely. Now, why such a reaction to false teachers? Shouldn't we be more gentle with people who speak against the truth of God's word well, it would be good to remind us that, again, eternal souls are at stake. And remember, these people aren't, they're not new to the faith. They're not just trying to understand the truths of God more deeply, that they're just misunderstanding the truth. They are actively and purposely teaching and, and preaching against the word of God. And when the eternal destination of people is at stake, a gentle hand is really not the best way to go. Now, for a bit of an illustration, if we were to start speaking of guns or vehicles or medicines, I don't know one person in here in this room who would agree, uh, or who would agree that safety is not important in those things. 
Those are just three things. Guns, vehicles, and medicines. You misuse those, people could die if you use them wrongly. How much more when it comes to false teachers who are leading people to eternal death? If somebody's waving, you misusing medicine, let's just say, if somebody's using, or they're driving crazy and they're about ready to kill people, would we say, would you please slow down? Would you please drive more carefully? Just let's, let's, let's just kind of talk this over. I, I don't think so. You know, when you would have a conversation with them very sternly saying, okay, let's just say, there's a reason that kids take a long time and have to be behind the wheel for a certain amount of time, right, to get that experience, okay? So I'm, I'm about to go through that here in the next year. And if my son is driving dangerously and, and I continue to tell him, nope, you need to do this, you need to do that, do that, and he ignores me and he starts putting people's lives at stake, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to get a little bit worked up, right? Like, no, you need to understand you could kill somebody if you don't do this correctly. And as an elder, as a church body, even as a whole, when people are teaching false doctrines that are not found in God's word, it could lead them to hell. How much more so should we be strong to silence them and to rebuke them sharply? That is the call of an elder. It's never fun. It's never easy. You always have people's hearts at stake. You always have emotions that can come into it. But yet it is the call and the task of an elder to silence and severely rebuke false teachers. Because souls are at stake. The crux of the passage is found in 13. Because immediately when, when we hear these words, rebuke them sharply, you hear, be a jerk to them and kick them out of the church. Well, there's a reason that Paul says, to you, uh, says it in this way. After speaking of the reputation of, of Cretans, Paul says, therefore, rebuke them sharply. Why? That they may be sound in the faith. The goal of silencing and rebuking sharply is not to humiliate or to be jerks, but to win them over to the truth of God. In hearing, knowing, and understanding the truth of God, our hope and our prayer is that they would repent, they would believe, and they would be saved from eternal death to eternal life. And the severity of the rebuking has an end goal. It's their salvation. It's very similar when you have someone who refuses to repent of their sin and they're a believer. Eventually, through a long process, a very difficult process, you kick them out of the church and you refuse to fellowship with them. Why? So that they may be won over to Christ. In fact, I think the Bible says, hand them over to Satan himself so they could see the wrong of their ways, repent, and come back to the body. It is not a call just to be mean and, well, I disagree with you, so you're out. No, it's you're speaking falsely through God, by God's word. Let's go to God's word. I'm going to point this out to you, and I'm going to do it severely. 
and sharply, straightforward. There's no Minnesota nice when it comes to this, right? But I'm doing it to save your soul so that you might repent and believe. But simply knowing the truth isn't enough. I mean, Satan himself knows the truth, and yet he doesn't believe. And even acting the part of a believer isn't enough. That happens a lot in churches too because eventually every unbeliever is going to be exposed. It's going to be unmasked. The truth always comes out. See, the problem is not about... Knowledge, knowledge and acts can be a problem. But where the real problem lies in people who speak falsely and teach falsely is it's a heart issue. The heart of these false teachers needs to be changed. Verse 15, if we look at it, um, it seems kind of weird, doesn't it? It seems kind of out of place. It's, it's good when you see things like that. Like, why is this passage here? Let's look at that. Verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Paul wrote these words for a reason. These are not out of place. And so we got to work through this. We got to study this to figure out what is he trying to get out? What is he trying to say? Now, for a Jew, purity or cleanliness or cleanness was of utmost importance, which is why there were laws and rules, not only in Scripture, but then man-made, like, I, okay, I, I can't do this or I'll be impure. God says through his law, I cannot do this or I will be unclean. So I'm going to create 10 different laws of my own to prevent me from even getting close to breaking that law. So there were law upon law upon law upon law to keep the Jewish individual pure and clean. And so a process, if you happen to become unclean, there was a process of purification that had to, be take, had to take place in order for them to be restored or to be made clean so that they can worship God in the congregation or for the high priest to be able to go in and to make a sacrifice um, on, on behalf of the people. And Paul specifically calls out the circumcision party, which was a party of people. This is not just in Crete. This is, this is a party that seems to be everywhere in the New Testament church that they held that one had to believe in Jesus and be circumcised to be considered part of the people of God. In other words, Christ's life, death, and resurrection wasn't enough to save or to cleanse people from their sins. It's a false teaching of Jesus plus, which leads to eternal death. So that's one way. You, how do you recognize a false teacher? They say, believe in Jesus and do this. Believe in Jesus and do that. The gospel is Jesus. Salvation is found through him alone. Not through Jesus who wasn't sufficient enough plus something else. Like you need to not only believe in Jesus, but you, you have to attend church regularly. If you don't, you're not a believer. Or you have to give a certain amount of money and believe in Jesus. That's Jesus plus you really want to show your faith. In order to get more faith, you need to get more money. 
you need to do this, you need to do that. To the truly pure, those truly clean before God through faith in Jesus Christ, Paul says all things are clean. So there's no food that cannot be eaten which would not make one unclean. Or there is no ritual that would make one clean. And that not doing that ritual doesn't make one unclean. You understand what I'm saying? There's there's nothing that can make us unclean. Why? Because Christ has purified us as his people through the shedding of his blood. But to defiled, to the defiled and the unbelieving, these false teachers and those who follow them, nothing is clean. Why? Because Paul says both their minds and their consciences are unclean. Now, the mind refers to understanding and knowledge, and so their understanding of the truth of God is defiled. That's why they have to be taught sound doctrine. But the conscience is a bit more tricky. In Scripture, the conscience is closely tied to action. So if I believe that my actions are according to the truth of God's Word, then my conscience is good. I I have a good conscience. But should I be shown that my actions are not according to the truth of God? And then my conscience at that point then is not good and it's defiled. And so in the case of false teachers, they're kind of a weird combination. They believe that their consciences are good because they profess God. I believe in God. But then their lives, their actions, reveal that they actually deny God. It reveals that they are unbelievers. Their minds and their consciences are defiled because their heart is defiled. As Jesus says, it's not what, puts, what you put in your, in your mouth or what you do on the outside that makes you clean or unclean. It's what comes out of the heart that makes you clean or unclean. So what this does not mean is that anyone who sins has a defiled heart because every believer struggles and fights against the sin in their own hearts, even though they're redeemed and they're purified and they're saved by the blood of Christ. Does that, does that make sense? That's not what, that is not what that means. What it does mean is that these unbelieving false teachers, they are using their own good works to save themselves and misleading others to follow the same path. In their understanding, good works, quote-unquote good works, are a way to be saved. Their outward actions are the means by which they are saved in their minds. But according to Scripture, when when it talks about good works and outward actions, do not save, but they are a sign of salvation. And these good works, they're not just doing good things, because there's a lot of people in the world who are doing good things, doing good works, whose final destination is eternal death and hell. So, their minds and their consciences are defiled, and it is revealed by what they're doing. And what are they doing? They are striving to be good, be circumcised in this case, do this ritual, it will save you. That is what is proving that they are false teachers. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, a famous passage. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. It is not, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we who are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them, in those good works. So we're not saved by works. We're not saved by circumcision. We're not saved by baptism. We're not saved by taking communion, as we will in a few minutes. We're not saved by being a good person. We're not saved by going to church. We're not saved by giving money to a church. We are saved by the gift of faith and grace so that we would do the good works God prepared beforehand at the foundation of the earth. We are not saved by our works, but our works are the sign that we are saved. We are His workmanship, Paul says in Ephesians. He, God, changes our defiled hearts into pure hearts. No work of my own can change even my own heart. God has to do it for me. And he does it so that we would do good works. That we would live a life which conforms to the character and the image of God. That is what those good works are. When Paul says, for we are his workmanship, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. He changes us not to do our good works or what society says is a good work, but what God says is a good work. And so godly elders, let's bring it into the context. The context is within the church, right? This is not just, this is not about an individual believer trying to live a godly life outside of the church. This is false teachers within the church that godly elders need to recognize. And so godly elders cannot change the heart of false teachers and those who follow those false teachers in their own power. So I, in other words, if there's a false teacher at Elm Creek, as elders, we can sit down with them and we can reason with them like just logically in our own logic and our own knowledge and our own minds, uh, with our own minds, but it's not going to do a darn thing. Because as great as I may think I am, or any elder, or as great as you may think you are in your understanding and the logic and be able to convince somebody logically, if they're an unbeliever, there's no logic in the world that will save. It's helpful, (laughs) but it doesn't save. Only Christ saves. And Christ saves through the hearing of his word. So when an elder sits down with a false teacher or those who are believing false teaching, we go to, as Paul says, in Titus chapter 1, we go to his trustworthy word which has the power to change and cleanse and purify defiled hearts and minds and consciences. I cannot do that. Only he can. And he does it through the preaching and the teaching of his word. This is why we work through scripture verse by verse. 
I could be the most eloquent preacher, eloquent preacher. I can, I can logically walk through things and, and that, that's enjoyable, but, but I, 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 can't, I can't change hearts. There are eloquent speakers. Just get on the internet. You can find an eloquent speaker who is speaking such falsehoods they are leading people to hell. Eloquence means nothing when it comes to salvation. Again, it's helpful, <laughs> but it doesn't save. God's Word saves. What, is, what does this mean for us? Well, if we desire to be a godly, spiritually healthy, Christ-following, God-centered church, then the elders of Elm Creek, there's a lot, of, there's a lot we could talk about just with that statement right there, right? If we desire to be godly, spiritually healthy, God, Christ-following, God-centered we could go on from there. What would that look like? But in the context of this passage, the elders of Elm Creek must be qualified. They must hold firm to the trustworthy word of God and be willing to silence and sharply rebuke false teachers and those who follow them. Not just to protect the church as a good shepherd protects his sheep, but ultimately to win those who are led astray by false teaching over to the truth of God's word. And so they say, okay, well, what does that apply for? I'm not an elder. I, I don't want to be an elder after the last couple of weeks. You kidding me? I don't want to do that. So what, what do I do then as, as God's people here at Elm Creek? Pray. Pray for not just the current elders, but the future elders. Pray for us. Currently, Josh and Luke and myself are elders. And Lord willing, more will be added in the future years. Who knows that maybe there's kids right now who are listening to this, that God is calling you to be an elder when you get older and more spiritually mature. Pray for them. Pray that, they, that we as elders here currently would be founded upon the word of God and strengthened to silence and rebuke false teachers. Pray that we would recognize false teaching which means we got to be in the Word of God, which means we got to study the Word of God, which means we got to dig in deep in the Word of God, and we need to understand what is God really saying here because eternal souls are at stake. We do this not for our own selfish gain, but to protect God's flock that He's appointed us to shepherd well. Not for the protection of our own power, but for the salvation of those who teach falsely and believe unsound doctrine. And then pray for those unbelievers that they would hear the trustworthy word of God, not just from the pulpit, although we don't have a pulpit, from the music stand, not from Sunday morning, but in every Bible study, in every small group, in every conversation that the church has together, everything that we do, that the word of God would be its foundation and point unbelievers to the truth of salvation through Christ alone. If it's about getting butts in the seats, we have missed the point. If it's about getting money in our coffers, we have missed the point. 
point is the salvation of God's people and the growth of God's people. And so pray for our elders. Pray for unbelievers. Not just who come on a Sunday morning, uh, God willing, but the people that we are in interaction with throughout, throughout our lives, throughout the rest of the week. You see, Christ paid our debt before God. This is not about us. What? Let's just say it to me. This should not be about us. This church, this worship service, this ministry that we do is not about us feeling good. It's not about us um, making sure that we're comfortable. It's not about that. And we fail at that time. We're, we're human. We deal with our own sin. and We deal with our own struggles within our own heart. We, we get that. But ultimately, we need to understand that this is not about us. Taking communion today is not about showing to, not just about showing to other people that I'm a believer. That, that is part of it. But it's not this, look, I'm good. I could take the bread and I could take the cup. It is, oh my goodness, praise Jesus, he saved me. Christ paid our debt before God. He turned away the wrath of God for our sins. He took his wrath upon himself so that we would be saved. His works, his death, his life, his resurrection, they have saved those who believe. That's the goal. That's the goal. And this is why he commands us to remember through the taking of the bread and through the taking of the drink. This is why he, he commands that if you are an unbeliever, you do not partake of this because this is huge for us as God's people. This is a remembrance of we're not for Christ, there go I. In other words, I would be destined for the pits of hell and eternal death if Christ had not saved me. Praise his holy name. And remind me, my life is not my own. This church is not my own. This world and this life is not my own. It belongs to God. And so may I strive each and every day to live for him. May we as a church strive each and every day, individually and corporately, not to bring glory to ourselves, but to bring glory to him. May we as elders recognize false teaching to to repudiate and rebuke it sharply so that they might be saved. May we as a church pray for our elders that they would have the strength to do so for the glory of Christ and the salvation of souls. That's what this is about. This church thing, this Christianity thing. It's about Him, not about us. So if you are a believer, if you are saved by grace, not by works, you are welcome to join us. You don't have to be a member of Elm Creek. You're welcome to join us at the table. You come, take a cup, take a piece of bread. You come and sit down at the seat. And then we together as God's family, we together will take this and remember what Christ did for us together. It's a time of joy. It's a time of reflection. It's a time of giving him the glory. Amen? Amen. So when you are ready, go ahead and grab a cup and a bread and head back to your seat.